Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you after five years. Uh, give you just a little bit of the history going since then. Uh, Linda and I live in, in Plano, Texas. We, several years ago, moved in with our son and daughter-in-law and their six children and a schnauzer. And uh, uh, because of some asthma issues that I was experiencing, and then I was invited to come to McCook, Nebraska, a little over uh, two years ago, and we went up there for we were there for about nine months, uh, doing an interim there in the uh, area which is just next to Kansas and and Colorado. I'll give you an idea where McCook is, and uh, we were there for about nine months. But uh, I developed an arrhythmia, which I had had a few times in the past, but it was got, had gotten serious, and my asthma had just taken completely over. And my cardiologist in uh, Baylor in, in, in uh, Plano said, uh, sooner is better than later. So uh, we had to end that work, but we had set it up well, and the associate pastor is there now as the senior pastor and a wonderful guy, and the ministry is going forward uh, tremendously, and we're so thankful for that. The church is reaching out to, to the Colorado state line. It has people from Kansas coming over uh, to the church. They've established three in the last year during the epidemic here. They have established three congregations in outlying towns uh, 20, 30 miles away, and have elders over those, and it's just amazing to see what the Lord is doing uh, out there. I think about Robert Frost saying, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I had no idea I was going to go into interim ministry when we retired from our church in Connecticut in 2007. But uh, uh, the Lord introduced us to IPM, and we were able to do, over the last 10 years or so, 13 years, able to do seven interims. It's been uh, every any place from, from 8 to 16 months. And uh, I was able to coach some 15 guys who were also in interims and and uh, to help them work through the issues that their churches and congregations were, were facing. And it was, it was really good. But I have to tell you this. We left uh, McCook uh, March 15, 2020. That was the last Sunday that the church was together. And we drove straight, ha- straight home to, to Dallas, uh, some 685 miles on Monday morning. And I ain't preached since. <laughs> I haven't even taught. But uh, years ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I was a graduate student uh, at Dallas Seminary, and I was also a graduate student at Dallas at uh, SMU, and uh, I was very much uh, aware of literature, and I was getting ready to go into that. Uh, I was offered a teaching fellowship at SMU in literature, and then the Lord stepped in, and uh, I went to Kansas City to the first pastorate that I had. And it's been interesting, in this last year, uh, since I've not been able to preach, I've sort of gotten back into the literature thing, and uh, this, this month we'll be having some, a couple of poems published in a, in a journal, 
and uh, doing doing some other writing for some of the short stories that I've done and had published and and it's just been it's been good to, to you know to have something to keep hanging on to but always the lord always the lord a few months ago i was corresponding with uh, an editor of a christian journal and we were talking about uh, what was happening with this pandemic and and how we look back in history and we see some other things for instance 1345 uh, the black plague hit death a uh, death hit uh, Europe, 50% of the population, they think between 30 and 50 million in Europe died. It, it collapsed the economy, it collapsed the feudal system, and it led to literally what is called the Reformation and the Renaissance or Renaissance, uh, a rebirth. Something great happened out of it. And you know what? I wouldn't put it past our Lord to do something really great now as this thing is winding down and we're beginning to reassess and people are beginning to look at themselves again and say, wait a minute, you know, what's this all about? And so I think that it's, you know, we have to look to the Lord. And that led me back, you know, these I follow these rabbit trails of my thought, and that led me back to thinking about Genesis and, and, and uh, Noah and uh, the, the ark and how God used Noah in, and to preserve the human race and then how he has used uh, his uh, appeared in scripture. You realize there's some more than 50 references to Noah in the word of God. He appears in nine books, nine books. And there are four chapters here in the book of Genesis that are given over to Noah and, and what he was uh, doing for the Lord. And as we look at this, I'm just, I'm just amazed that the, the, the story of Noah and the ark captures attention. And today, and I remember that just this past week, watching on one of our cable networks, uh, they had an ad there for Noah's ark, that you can go and see, you know, this reproduced Noah's ark. And I am reminded of a story of a uh, a group that was going up Mount Ararat trying to find Noah's Ark. And uh, they, they heard from this villager about a, an old Sherpa that lived up higher, and he said that he had seen something like an anthill, or I mean uh, a uh, termite mound. And he thought, well, wait a minute, what is this? Uh, th- th- that's way up above the forest line. There's nothing up there. What would, uh, what would, what would termites find to eat up there except wood? So they went up there, they got up, and, and they, they found the Sherpa, and he said, yes, he says, there is a humongous a hill up there, and there's big, big termites. And so they got all the way up there, and they saw this hill. And as they get closer, it was bigger and bigger, and then they saw something waving back and forth. And they got up to it, and they saw it was a humongous termite. And something was, he was mumbling something. And they turned to the Sherpa and said, can you understand what he's saying? Yes, it's, it's strange. He's saying, I, I, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. <laughs> oh, there's all sorts of interest in Noah's Ark and, and Noah's family and so forth. But I just lost my notes. 
But uh, what I'd like to do today is, is point out just six, six things, six words that really stand out uh, in our text here. Uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter refers to Noah, and, and he says that in the last days, people will deny the fact that uh, there ever has been a judgment of God. They believe in uniformitarianism. You know, things, uh, as, as uh, Carl Sagan said, you know, the universe is all there ever was, is, or will be. You know, c'est la vie. That's all there is, folks. Put out the lights. Uh, you know, that we're, we're just purposeless, purposeless here in this creation. And they look at, uh, and he says in the, in the last days, people are going to say, to this, oh, the earth's always continued. There's, there's never been a cataclysm like this. And people are in denial of it. Skeptics love to rage against the story's implications. Uh, but Peter makes that clear. And then Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7 uh, makes the statement that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Eating, drinking, be merry, maybe, you know, eating and drinking, giving in marriage, just continuing. Life just goes on, and they willingly forget. They willingly, knowingly forget. They want to blot it out. They don't want that part of their reckoning. They don't want to have to deal with what has happened in the past. Perhaps one of the most revealing statements about this man is found over in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse, 11 verse 7 is read. And it says that in, in, in uh, holy, holy faith, he built the ark to save his family. And it also goes on to say, and by his faith, he condemned the world. He condemned the world. And that word that he uses there in the book of Hebrews is the word krino in Greek. And it means to really pass a judgment upon them. He just to tell them this is what it is. Uh, to, uh, and Noah's life and those years that he was preparing that ark were a remonstrance against the people of that day and what they were doing and how they were living. There's a story out of Greek literature, um, a man by the name of, we'll call him in the English language, uh, Alcibiades, Alcibiades in, the, in Greek. But uh, he, was a, he became a, he was a, a, an Athenian. He was a very important statesman there, not only there, but with Sparta. And you know all about that war uh, there that took place in the fourth century. But he became a disciple of Socrates. And he made this statement in, uh, about Socrates. He says, Socrates, I hate you because every time I meet you, you tell me what I am or you show me what I am. You reveal what I really am. And you know, isn't that what the word of God does? It's, it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, but it reveals the thoughts, the intents of the heart, doesn't it? And you know, that is how Noah functioned in his life and times. The first thing I want to point out on the, on the little outline I gave you is, I want to talk about the corruption of culture. Have you ever heard that term used today? You won't hear it on CNN. You won't hear it on ABC or NBC or CBS or any of those. It might be on Fox News, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you think about the corruption of, of culture. And there are three words that characterize that. The first one that we see in our text is, 
is uh, just a little ways further in, well, in, in verse 8, excuse me, verse 5, it says, God saw that man's wickedness was great. His wickedness uh, was great. And, you know, if there's a word that maybe captures our culture today, maybe the word wickedness, uh, the Hebrew word that is in there, rahah, has, has a, a moral meaning, and it, is the, it means the complete opposite of the Hebrew word tov, which is good. And we are told that God is good. And so it is that which is opposed to what is good. Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, makes the statement, Woe to them who call evil good and good evil. Have you noticed that today? Seen any signs of that when that which is evil is, is called good? It, it has a very deep moral overtone or undertone, whichever you prefer. Uh, it, has, it has a context of, of morality uh, around it. For instance, it is the very word that Joseph, later in the book of Genesis, uses when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And he says to her, how can I, then can I do this great evil, and that is our word for wickedness, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And you notice how he puts that wickedness parallel to sinning against God. Uh, Nietzsche shook his fist at God in some of his uh, 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 mention Uppermensch, uh, the God, uh, man and, and Superman. And he shakes his fist of God and he says, no, I am not a miserable sinner. You know, rebelling against God, morally wicked, wicked. The second word that we see here is, is uh, used in, in uh, a number of contexts. Down in verse 12, if you'll go down there for just a minute past what we read, uh, it says in, in, uh, in verse 11 that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, was full of violence. God saw the corruption of the earth and, and what the people were, that all of the people were corrupted. Uh, and, and that's another very interesting word because the, the word means to be spoiled or ruined. That's one context in which you might see it. It's something, you know, that uh, I remember as a child, uh, we were at a church function and my mother was fixing something and she opened a can of cherries, the canned cherries, and she poured them out and she noticed they didn't all come out and we looked in the bottom of it and there was this black mass. You know, what did she do? Say, oh, well, we just used the good ones here. No, you know, the whole thing went out. Uh, and that idea of corruption means to be spoiled it means to be ruined, but it also means to be perverted and twisted from its original intent. You know anything about that today? Where that which has had one intent, and God said, you know, as he created the man and the woman, so shall this be. Uh, for this cause shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave to his own wife, and they too shall be what? One flesh. And then you think of the words in the New Testament, the Lord adds, and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. 
Have we seen any of that corruption taking place in our society? It's to pervert something from its natural, real use. And, and by doing that, to literally destroy it. I have watched the attack on marriage for a number of years. And, uh, you know, it's Satan attacking what God's first, his first social institution. After he created the man, he, crea- he said it's not good for a man to be alone, and he created the woman. And he brought them together. And that was the beginning of marriage. Jesus refers to that as it was so in the beginning, so it, is, it continues. Marriage was God's intention for man and woman for the replication of the race and for the unity of man. Satan is attacking the first basic social institution that God created. So you see, he's going back to the beginning. So the idea of corruption. And then he says that, that uh, there, the, in verse 13, he says that the violence, the, the world is now filled with violence. You seen any violence recently? Have you, you know, there are, uh, Linda and I uh, grew up in Kansas City, on the Kansas side, thankfully. Uh, and we went to rival high schools. I, I went to Shawnee Mission North High School out in, in uh, uh, Johnson County, and she went to Wyandotte High School in Kansas City, Kansas. But uh, one of the things we so appreciated about Kansas City was going downtown Country Club Plaza. Uh, in fact, um, there's been a lot of paintings of the Country Club Plaza, uh, especially with the Christmas lights outlining all of the buildings uh, there, and uh, we have one of those big paintings in 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 our in our home that of the Country Club Plaza. And a couple of years ago, uh, uh, we were we were up in Kansas City with my even more recent than that with my brother and sister-in-law who lived there, and we were told, you know, this, the the Kansas City Country Club Plaza is a place to avoid. You know, people do not go there. The businesses are moving out, and you, it, it's dangerous to go to that area. And it was, it was appalling, you know, to think about that. But here's this word violence. It's never used of natural calamity, this, this term that you see here. It's never used of storms. It's never used of tornadoes. It's never used of earthquakes. And when we lived in Southern California for six years... Yeah, there were such things. Uh, by the way, when we moved from Southern California, we went to Chicago. And the people out in Southern California, you know, after they straightened up all their, their, their uh, pictures every day, uh, said to us, oh, how could you move there? What about tornadoes? You know, and then they forget that our whole neighborhood was had, before we moved, had been destroyed by a fire. 300 and some homes in the panorama fire, just absolutely down to just the fireplaces standing. And they say, oh, hi, would you want to go there? It's never used of that. It's always used of a hatred kind of thought toward other people that leads to hideous violence. Have you ever seen that? Are these words characteristic of our culture today? Do we see them around us? Do we see them in Texas? You know, do we see them in Bryan or College Station or even here in Curtin? Do we see those things working out? 
We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the summoning of the common man. And so there was a divine condemnation that was given here, and there's going to be another divine condemnation that's already been prophesied in Scripture. But some, some uh, three times, for instance, uh, in the book of Romans, it says God gave them over. God gave them over. And here in Genesis 6 and, 6, 6 and 7, it says God gave them time. He gave them the, the years, but he said he was determined to, to blot them out. He was determined that it was going to end. It was going to end. And so we see that God is patient. We're told in, in 2 Peter 3 that God is patient, not willing that any should perish. But there is a day coming when God says, put out the lights. You know, everybody out of the pool, so to speak. There's, there's going to be that time as there was in the days of Noah. And yet, it is God's time, it's not ours. Noah was given a job to do. He wasn't told when that was going to happen. He was told he had something to do. And that was to build an ark, and he did so for the saving of his family. But other passages in Scripture tell us some really interesting things about him. So we see a sort of a startling contrast between Noah and his family and the culture that was around them. I'm, I, just where you live today, I've been away here for five years, but um, if you could just look at the culture around where you live, how does your life and the life of your family differ qualitatively from some of the other families around or from, from the culture generally? Are you finding yourself really comfortable? Really, oh, you know, everything's going well in our community and all of this. Have you looked deeply? Have you, what have you seen? What do you see? Do you find sometimes that your heart is grieved for maybe things that you hear about people that you've respected and known and, and say, wow, what is happening here? But Noah here is, is seen as, uh, and that adversity of conjunction that we, that we see here uh, in, in the verse here that, that says, but Noah found favor. And that word favor means to go over like this to somebody to give them something. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so what was it that was seen there? I think the first thing that we see here, it says he was a righteous man. A righteous man. Um, early in church history, there was a council of Nicaea in 325 AD. They were wrestling with a group of Arians. Now, the Arians were the forerunners of the Jehovah's Witnesses that do not believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ. They believe that, you know, John 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, they say that they put a little A in there and they say the word was a God. And they try to defend that and they try to put Jesus Christ aside. Well, that's what, what uh, 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 Athanasius was, uh, the bishop of Alexander, and he stood against this heresy that was invading the church. And of course, the Roman emperor at the time was sort of, was himself an Arian. And so he went into exile 
Athanasius went into exile, but he continued to preach, he forget, pre, uh, continued to write, and eventually at the, the Council of Nicaea in 325, he was justified because the church went away from Arianism. And it was said of, of, of this man, Athanasius, he was contra mundum. That was a label that was given him. Athanasium contra mundum. And it meant one man. Contra mundum means against the world. Oh. One man. Look at Noah. How many people were left after the deluge? You can count them on two, two hands, can't you? Two fours. Eight people. How many righteous people were there? Would God not have brought them into the ark? You see how absolutely corrupt his culture had become? He says he was a righteous man. Now that doesn't mean he was sinless. But it, the, the word that is un, uh, under this in the Hebrew text, it means to be justified in the way one is and what one does. This is the same word, this word that is used in Isaiah to describe the, might, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the righteous one, my servant, will justify. And there's a word. You know, those two words associated. It means to be justified by God, not because Noah was perfect. If God had demanded perfection going into the ark, who would have gone? But he was justified by God. He was a righteous man. Romans 5 declares that, that, that righteousness is a free gift from God. So he was, his righteousness was that which related, was his relationship with God, declared righteous by God. And the second word that is, is used of him, it says uh, that he was blameless. Now again, blameless doesn't necessarily mean to, it doesn't mean to be sinless, but has the idea of being a complete, absolutely complete or sound. It's not impaired. It is, it is what it is supposed to be. Uh, and so this idea of, of being blameless here um, means, well, it's, I'll give you how it was used. It was used in Israel uh, when the the sheep were separated and the sacrificial lamb was segregated out and was carefully watched to make sure it was what? Without blemish. And that is the word uh, that is, is used here of Noah as well. Blameless means to be without blemish. To be in, in observed, it means it's healthy. It means that, that uh, there aren't any real defects there. And a healthy relationship begins with our relationship with God. And of course, that's the third word. That's the last word that describes him. What does it say about him? It says, he walked with God. It's used in his genealogy as well of a man by the name of Enoch. Um, you know the story of Enoch. Uh, when I was a graduate work at, at SMU, I had to do a seminar uh, on, on figures of speech to some undergraduate students. And, and I 
I had chosen the, the one word that I was using that day was paradox. A paradox is something that looks like it's false. It just can't make sense. And I used this little couplet. The oldest man that ever lived died before his father did. And you know what that is? The professor was the chair of the department was standing, he was sitting there and he says, Tom, what? The oldest? That's, I said, it's from the book of Genesis. And I said, the paradox is this. <clears throat> Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. His son, Methuselah, the oldest man that ever lived, 900 and some years. And so everybody said, oh. But it's interesting, the word that is used of Enoch that got him translated to God's presence was the same word that we have here. He walked with God. May I ask you this morning, how well are we walking with God? What in this culture in which we live are we, you know, how are we being seen? How are we being related to? Uh, what is it that we are doing that makes a difference? Uh, it says that, that, and it also says of Noah that, that by his actions and his life, uh, he re was rebuking the world. He's rebuking his age. Oh, friends, you know, how is our life a rebuke? How are our actions, how are our words a rebuke to a culture that is corrupted? You see, we're not, God is not taking us out of the world, but he expects us to live in the world as other worldlings. What is, what is the old word? You know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We're here on a, we're here on a visa. We're, we're, born, we're bound for the city of God, the true city of God. But we're to live here as citizens of heaven. And you cannot live as a citizen of heaven without having problems with the culture of the world. So how well are we doing? Well, I think the, 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 but the, one of the key things here that we close with is what Hebrews eleven seven said. He prepared an ark for the salvation of his family. First circle. First things first. Our closest, closest relationships. That's where the gospel should be most relevant. How wonderful if future generations, how many there may be, you know, a lot of people are saying right now, they're looking up, your redemption's drawing nigh. But no, no matter how many generations will come, how many will look back at us and say those three characteristics were true in our lives? Will our children say that? Will our grandchildren? What about the future? What kind of people do we want to be? Righteous people in a corrupt culture. Thank you, Lord, for Noah. Thank you that he was a man who walked with you. He was a man who stood upright in the midst of corruption. Lord, may we do the same today in our Savior's name. Amen.